0: If you are reading along with the scripture reading this morning, the text actually begins in the 19th chapter of John, verse 38, reading through the 20th chapter, verse 18. I will be reading from the New English Translation. After these things, that is, after Jesus had been crucified, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the religious authorities, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, they laid him in the tomb that was close at hand. Now, on the first day of the week, two days later, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out and with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, now lying with the linen cloths, uh, not with them, but folded up in a place over by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes She turned immediately and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. Then she told them all that he had said to her. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Apart from everything else about Easter, the Easter bunny, the Easter egg hunt, the new clothes, the families gathering, the celebration of spring, the wonderful music, apart from all that Easter has become, We are here today because of how Easter began, with an empty tomb and a missing body. When someone you love dies, you ask yourself a thousand times, where did they go? This is an existential question The hole left by their absence leaves a vacuum the size of life. It's a question of faith rather than a question of their GPS coordinates. Unless for some tragic reason there is no body left. This is the added tragedy of the Malaysian airline disaster of the capsized ferry in South Korea of the 9-11 victims. This is the reason comrades in arms always go back to collect their fallen. Without a body of the deceased, closure is almost impossible. We can easily deceive ourselves, thinking maybe they're still alive out there somewhere. Who knows when we might see them again. Without a body, the grieving process takes Much, much longer. The Emily Dickinson poem goes After great pain, a formal feeling comes. The nerves sit ceremonious like tombs. This is the hour of lead, remembered, if outlived, as freezing persons recollect the snow. First, the chill then the stupor, then the letting go. Without a body, how much longer does it take to let go? For as long as humanity has existed, according to all the anthropologists, the problem of what we do with our dead bodies has always been a particularly human issue If they're your enemies, unfortunately, irreverently, we tend to mutilate them. But if they're not, then we cremate them, anoint them, embalm them, bury them, dump them at sea, or stick them in a cave. If there's not a body, then you memorialize them. The reverent care of dead bodies is part of what makes us particularly who we are. And until the last century, it has always fallen on family and friends to do the work On the deceased. These days, ironically, we don't do so well with dead bodies. The problem is that, well, they're dead. And we don't like death. Popular culture teaches us to obsess on the possibility that instead they might have become ghosts, disembodied spirits, or, which is all the rage these days, zombies. Bodies with no spirits at all, lifeless corpses still roaming the streets, which could describe several of my college mates as I remember from time to time. Not knowing what to do with the dead, we have contracted it out to the funeral director. It used to be the undertaker, which is an ominous name if ever there was one. Now it's the funeral director. When a person dies, you call them up and they make the arrangements. They pick up the body. They place the obituary. They help you decide whether to cremate or to bury. By the way, if you care, I think cremation is, excuse the pun, the way to go. It takes up less space. It's less expensive. And thank goodness it's not this body that will be raised. These funeral directors help us make those decisions, and even sometimes they help conduct the service in their own funeral parlor chapel. Now, I'm not knocking funeral directors. They provide a great service, taking the burden off the dead, uh, of the dead off our hands, but I think that we have lost something in the deal. Sometimes at memorial services these days, it's hard to even tell that someone has died. There's no dead body, there's no coffin, There are not even any ashes because the crazy law in Florida, for which I can't figure out, requires there to be seven to ten days before the ashes are returned. And usually our memorial services come sooner than that. Now we have mostly photographs. When there is a body or ashes to be buried, it's usually done in a private ceremony. In the old days, they used to have wakes they would put the body up on your kitchen table and you would sit and look at it for three days to make sure that it didn't wake up. That's why they called it a wake. Now that'll slap you upside the head with your own mortality. There's Uncle John on the kitchen table. In the old days, after that wake, they would take the pine box with the body in it and they would carry it singing and lamenting on the way to church, which was never very far And then they would have a funeral service in church with the body probably exposed. And then they would all go out and bury it in the cemetery that was out in the front yard of the church. Which is one reason I really like having our memorial garden in the front of the church. It reminds us of who we are and whose we are. And who is really eternal in this game anyway. Now I know, golly, I'm on thin ice here. It's Easter after all. I mean the church is full. Children and grandchildren and visitors and possibly new members are here, and if any preacher worth his salt had any sense, he'd be up here telling funny jokes and making everybody laugh. I'm not talking about dead bodies. Friends, we have to own up at least to this much about Easter. Easter is the resurrection of Jesus Christ who, as the creed says, was dead and buried. Breaking news, there is no Easter without a dead body and a missing one at that. This is why John's gospel goes to such great pains to show what happened to Jesus' body after he died on the cross. An apparently wealthy disciple, Joseph of Arimathea, asked that he could have the body instead of the body being thrown into a common pit, as most prisoners were. He knew that the coming of the Sabbath was near, and so he had to work hastily to get the body prepared, as was the Jewish custom. At that point, Nicodemus joined him, carrying with him a 100 pounds of aloe and myrrh, the anointing oil of the dead. Nicodemus must have known that Jesus' death smelled to such high heaven that it would take a hundred pounds of aloe to undermine that stench. The story says that they were in a hurry, so they took the body of Jesus and, after anointing it, wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid it in this unused grave near the cross. Soon Sabbath came, and they had to wait. Thomas Lynch, a funeral director in his own right, as well as the son of a funeral director, he calls himself an undertaker, who also is a poet, says that he remembers when he was a kid, his father would come home after working down at the funeral parlor, and he would sit at the dinner table, and he would say to them, Today I had a couple of good funerals. What he meant by that was that he got the dead where they needed to go and the people where they needed and wanted to be. That became, for Thomas, this rule of thumb. A good funeral gets both the dead and the living where they need to be. In Jesus' case, however, it was not a good funeral. The dead got buried, but barely, and the living did not get where they needed to be, which is with Jesus' body as they put him to rest. There was way too much unfinished business. So, Mary Magdalene, in her own need to finish it, to bring closure as soon as possible, in the only way she knew how, went to see the body. The first day she was able, it was still dark, the story says. And for John's gospel, this is not just about the time of day. This is about the spiritual night that had descended when the dark brushstroke made its way across the cosmic sky when Jesus was crucified. It was still dark. Everything at that point had come to a standstill, a complete stop. The grieving The saying goodbye, the healing, everything was in a stasis, a kind of stasis, which is what happens when atoms, when two atoms stop moving. There is nothing but complete rest, a stasis. No energy, no vitality, no life, no reality like Mrs. Habersham's clock. It was still stopped. Groping her way toward the tomb, Mary needed closure, but when she got there, closure was the last thing that she found. In the first place, the tomb wasn't closed. The stone had been rolled away. She panicked, assuming that someone had stolen the body of Jesus, a terrible blasphemy for Jews, and ran back to the disciples weeping. They've stolen Jesus. I don't know where they've laid him. Bedlam then breaks loose. Peter and the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, we're not sure who that is, then ran from their home to the tomb. We are told that the other disciple outran Peter. And when he got there, he did not look in, but believed. When Peter got there, he did look in and noticed that the linen cloths were lying there as they had been dropped off, but the cloth that rested on Jesus' head the headcloth had been carefully folded up and put aside as if someone had just had a perfect meal and taking, taken their napkin out of their lap and folded it carefully and laid it on the table in deep gratitude. Then, we are told, the disciples go back home. However, Mary was still out there, stuck, in stasis, standing beside the tomb and weeping, when she finally does stoop to look in, she sees there are two angels there where Jesus had been. And they ask her, why are you weeping? As if they didn't know. They've taken away my Lord, she says. I don't know where they put him for the second time. Then unable to move, she sits back on her heels and weeps all the more. It is then, at that moment, that she catches the glimpse of someone near her, some person near her, and she presumes it must be the gardener. He's unrecognizable. She looks at him, and a third time she says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him. No body, no body, no closure, no moving on stuck Stasis. Friends, what comes next is why we are here. This is the moment of awareness of what Easter means. Jesus calls her name. Mary. And says it in exactly the same way he had said it all those many times before. Mary, And only the way Jesus could say it, he calls her name. And even though it didn't look like Jesus, she knew it was him. Immediately, her adrenaline starts pumping, her heart races. She comes back to life. She stands up and gushes, teacher, Rabboni. Then falls on her knees, reaching out to grab him. The first thing he tells her is, don't cling to me, for I must go to my Father. Then he tells her to go back to the disciples and proclaim the news that I have been raised from the dead and am ascending unto God. And Mary does just that. She takes off running back to the disciples, shouting, proclaiming this first woman preacher, I have seen the Lord. And then she told them all that he had said to her. You see, for this story, instead of bringing closure, everything is now wide open. Jesus being raised in a new and different form, a body, yes, but not an earthly body, not a body that you can hold on to, not a body that is stuck in time. and... Hey, look, if I don't understand it, Paul calls it a mystery, and it is. But if... Physicists now are saying that what we thought was one universe now may be multiverses, then what do we know? This resurrected Jesus in some new bodily form, yet unable to be grasped and held onto, is now, you see, the best news of all because it means cosmically Jesus is not limited to time and place but is now available to us in every time and place uncontrolled, unmanaged, and undomesticated. How are we going to bring closure to that? We may get a glimmer of him in a dream, perhaps, or in a garden. We may even think we hear his voice call our name. Then, poof, he's vanished. Why? Because he goes ahead of us, opening the way for us to follow in life. And in death, he goes to Galilee, where the disciples and where we grow up and where we work and move and have our being. He goes to the least of these and tells the disciples to find him there. He brings comfort to a young teenage man who has lost his father through the youth group who go and spend time with him day after day to keep him entertained. He's at grocery stores and airplanes and taxis and even at church. He is ever-present, this resurrected Christ. And where he comes will surprise us to death. There is no closure to this. In 1993, Bernhard Langer won the Masters Golf Tournament and was taken to Butler Cabin reserved only for a few to receive that prestigious green jacket. To be interviewed by Pat Summerall and Ford Harden, Ford Harden. Summerall asked him, "Bernhard, what a great day! What do you think of this day?" And Bernhard said, "This day is glorious." And then, taking everyone completely by surprise, he said, "For it is the day that my Lord has been raised." You could have heard a pin drop. Hardin and Summerall didn't know what to do or say. It was a moment where the resurrected Christ had broken out in butler cabin of all places. You see, this is the thing. Because of this resurrected Christ, there is no closure. No such thing as stasis. The Bible makes this very clear. The Greek word for resurrection, by the word, by the way, is. Anastasis, not stasis, not stopping, not closing, not ending, not giving up, ever, ever, forever, anastasis, resurrection. If a good funeral is about the undertaker getting the body where it needs to go and the people where they need to be, then a good Easter is about God getting the body where it needs to go and the people back on their feet and back into life where we need to be. In this sense, then, every single Easter is a good one. Nothing can stop us now in our tracks, for he goes before us. Not death, nor powers, nor principalities, nor life, nor depth, nor height, nor width, nor anything else in all creation can close it down. Anastasis, a good Easter to you. Let us rejoice by bringing forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.